You ready? One sunny day last October, I drove out to the little town of Hearn, Texas with my wife, Teresa. Do you have the map? We're using the GPS. Easy there, Indiana Jones. We parked our car beside a bridge that goes over the Brazos River, carried our canoe down a steep embankment, and put our boat in the water. Yeah. Just follow that little sandbar right there. We were trying to get a closer look at something that you can actually see from the bridge itself. Off on one side of the river, just upstream from the bridge, is an old broken down lock. The kind that ships go through on the Mississippi River, or maybe in the Panama Canal. Same thing, just smaller. It's kind of a weird sight. I've lived near the Brazos for almost nine years, and I don't think I've ever seen a John boat on this part of it, much less a boat big enough to need a lock. What's hard to see from the bridge is that the stretch of river upstream of the lock is littered with huge boulders, which the lock was supposed to allow the boats to float over. This is insane. I don't, how did they think they were going to get a steamboat up this? <laughs> oh no. Can't even get a canoe up it. Like seriously. In a lot of ways, this part of the Brazos downstream from Waco is practically invisible. People don't swim in it or tube it or pleasure boat on it. People don't build a lot of expensive homes on its banks, and there aren't any fancy city river walks with boutique restaurants. In fact, most people probably don't even think about this part of the river much at all, except maybe when they drive over it on their way to Austin. But a hundred years ago, a lot of Texans thought that the Brazos was going to be the Mississippi River of Texas, a superhighway for steamboats loaded with cotton. And that lock standing in the river near Hearn is a reminder of that. A reminder of a time when people had big hopes that the Brazos would one day be as important as the Nile or the Danube. It's a story that involves overly optimistic business leaders, pork barrel politics, and tragic floods. Don't forget the hotshot riverboat pilots. Okay, thanks, Teresa. I won't forget the hotshot riverboat pilots. Hi, my name is Jason Ridgway. I'm a geographer at Texas A&M University, and today I'm going to tell you the story of the disappearing river. How the middle stretch of the Brazos went from being a hero in the 19th century to a zero today. Along the way, I'll point out some of the ways that the river has shaped the landscape and history of the place we call the Brazos Valley. If you don't know much about the Brazos River, finding out that what you thought was a drainage ditch has a fascinating past is like finding out that your grandpa was a double agent in World War II. Well, maybe almost that exciting. To understand why people had such high hopes for the river and why those hopes didn't pan out, you kind of have to understand the geography of the Brazos River itself. For starters, the Brazos is a really long river, more than 800 miles long, making it the longest river in Texas. It cuts diagonally across the state, following the slope of the land as it comes down from the rolling plains in the northwest to the flat coastal plains along the Gulf of Mexico. On the way, the river cuts through a lot of the state's diverse ecological and geologic regions. The Brazos River downstream on its lower third is very much a meandering river of oxbow lakes and cutoffs and unstable soils that collapse. That's Dr. Kinalang Archer, an historian at Angelo State University. She wrote an environmental history of the Brazos called Unruly Waters. The part of the river she's describing is the lower section of the river which starts just north of Houston and snakes its way down to where it empties into the Gulf of Mexico near Galveston. This part of the Brazos is a wide, slow-moving, muddy river that frequently floods over its low banks. 
This is completely different from the upper part of the Brazos, which begins in the arid plains near Lubbock. Up where it begins, at its source, it is an ephemeral western river that is much more shallow, much smaller. It disappears. Occasionally it flows through canyonlands. And you have to join those two very variable geology somewhere. And where they join is in a middle transitional stretch of river that flows through an area we'll call the Brazos Valley. That old dilapidated lock is on this section, which starts near Waco, where the river flows over a major geologic boundary known as the Balcones Fault Zone. From there, the river runs nearly 200 miles to the town of Navasota, about 60 miles northwest of Houston, through a shallow valley carved over thousands of years as the Brazos changed course along its floodplain. Within the valley, the river's mostly slow-moving and calm. But every once in a while, it hits an outcropping of more resistant rock, and the river has to either go over, around, or through. When this happens, rapids called shoals can form, and sometimes the river drops over a shelf of a foot or more. Near the town of Navasota, for example, the river flows over a set of shoals called Hidalgo Falls as it cuts through what's known as the Casachi Wold, a chain of low hills that runs from central Louisiana all the way to the Rio Grande. Keep these shoals in mind. We're going to come back to them, because they have a lot to do with how that old lot got to be there. Besides the shoals and falls, another important feature of this part of the Brazos is that there can be huge variations in the amount of water that flows through it. During a dry period, the river can look like just a trickle running between its steep banks. You could walk across parts of the river when it's like this. Brazos Valley resident Dr. John Washington Lockhart wrote about doing just that during a drought in the early 1840s. In 1840 or 1841, Mr. Tillerson Wood and myself rode from Washington to Hidalgo Falls, some seven miles by land and perhaps double that by the river, along the bed of the river, never once having to leave it, but crossing from the point of one sandbar to the other. In some places, it looked as if a ten-foot rail would reach across the water. But when areas upstream of the valley get lots of rain, the river becomes a massive, powerful flow of muddy water and debris that overtops its banks and floods the valley surrounding it. During these times, the force of the river can reshape the unstable soils in its bed, collapsing banks, moving sandbars, and even causing the river to change its course. This can have huge consequences for people living in the valley. Just a year or two after Lockhart rode up the riverbed, he watched the devastating flood of 1842. During this great rise of the river, my father gathered his corn crop in boats, the water having covered the stalks of corn as far up as the ears. This was in June, and it was late in July before the flood subsided. During this great overflow, many buffaloes, wild horses, and smaller game were seen floating down the river intermixed with driftwood. When the water got near the top of the banks, the soil, being so loose and loamy, sometimes as much as one-fourth of an acre would slip into the river. As destructive as they can be, though, there's a silver lining to all these floods. Over thousands of years, they've deposited some of the richest agricultural soils in Texas into the river's floodplain. Native Americans, the Spanish, and the Mexicans all knew about these fertile bottomlands. But after Anglo settlers started arriving in Texas in the 1820s, it didn't take long for them to recognize the potential of these soils for large-scale agriculture. By the 1840s, the Brazos bottomlands were being hailed as some of the richest agricultural lands in Texas, 
and in the decade before the Civil War, plantations worked by black slaves occupied many of the river bottoms. On the lower reaches of the river, near the Gulf, sugarcane and cotton were the most popular cash crops. Farther upstream, the growing season was too short for sugarcane, but the conditions for cotton were perfect. By the Civil War, the southern end of the Brazos Valley had become a part of one of the two major cotton-producing regions in Texas. All that fertile soil wouldn't have been much use, though, if growers couldn't get their crops to market. In the early 1800s, Texans had two choices for moving their cotton, ox cart or riverboat. Ox carts were really slow and couldn't carry much. Steamboats, on the other hand, could carry tons of goods relatively quickly and cheaply, and a good chunk of the lower Brazos was navigable by steamboat. Texas cotton growers in the early 19th century saw all of this as a win-win. Brazos could potentially link some of the South's most productive cotton soils with a major international port at Galveston. It wouldn't take long, they figured, for the river to become one of the world's great commercial waterways, on par with the Mississippi River, the Nile, and the Danube. And in fact, this combination of fertile soils and steamboat access was pretty successful along the lower Brazos. That's one of the reasons why many of the early Anglo-Texan towns and cities were located on this river. But in the 1840s and 1850s, settlers started to flow farther north into the Brazos Valley in greater numbers. And as they did, people started to realize that this middle section of the Brazos might not be so cooperative. Remember all those shoals and falls in the river we talked about earlier? Well, those turned out to be a pretty big obstacle for riverboats. Certainly the shoals were a problem there in the middle part of the Brazos. That's Dr. Jim Kimmel. He taught geography for 23 years at Texas State University and wrote a book called Exploring the Brazos River from Beginning to End. The, uh, the old boat pilots, steamboat pilots, used to brag about being able to, to uh, run their boat on the, the suds from a keg of beer. And that was kind of the, the mark of a, of a good steamboat pilot. So they really kind of had to do that sometimes, I think. But as much as those hotshot riverboat pilots like to boast, the hard truth was that the farthest upstream a steamboat could usually get was the old town of Washington, near present-day Navasota, right at the south end of the Brazos Valley. Even the most daring steamboat pilots couldn't get over the shoals there at Hidalgo Falls unless the water was unusually high, and there were more shoals upstream of that. And if they didn't get back below Washington before the water went down, they could get stranded upstream until the river rose again. Add in the fact that at other times there was barely enough water in parts of the river to float a raft, and you can see why steamboats rarely made it up that far. Despite all that, some people at least were confident that this part of the river would eventually be routinely navigable. The village of Port Sullivan, near modern-day Hearn, was optimistically founded in 1851 as a riverboat town more than 50 miles upstream of Washington. It's no big surprise they never got regular steamboat traffic. The main part of the riverboat trade, though, continued to operate below Washington, and it was pretty successful right up until the Civil War. The Union blockade of the Texas coast put a stranglehold on trade with Galveston, though, and by the end of the war, a new challenger to the riverboat had emerged, the railroad. Railroads had been in Texas since before the war, and had even made it up to the southern end of the Brazos Valley by the late 1850s. But after the war, railroad companies laid tracks across the state at a breakneck pace, connecting the Brazos Valley with markets in both Houston and Dallas. With the exception of the stretch of river near the coast, the trains had pretty much killed the river trade on the Brazos by the 1870s. 
River towns like Washington and Port Sullivan had bet their futures on the river. When the riverboats stopped coming and people started moving to the new railroad towns, the old steamboat towns along the Brazos just faded away. But the idea that the river could be a cheap way to get the Brazos Valley's crops to market never died completely. Partly this was because people wanted competition from riverboats to bring railroad rates down. And partly this was because, unlike the railroads, the river was publicly owned, and that just made boats seem like a more democratic form of transportation. The city of Waco especially wanted to see more river traffic on the Brazos. Waco's central location, its railroad connections, and its proximity to the fertile Blackland prairies had made it a major inland cotton market, and city leaders saw Brazos River commerce as key to their future. So starting in the 1870s, mainly due to pressure from influential Wacoans, the Army Corps of Engineers began to study whether it was feasible to make the river navigable all the way to Waco. Now, to understand just how audacious this was, remember that even in their heyday, most riverboats never even made it into the Brazos Valley, and none had ever made it all the way to Waco. This idea wasn't just bold, it was bordering on crazy. And that's pretty much what the Corps said after its first survey in 1874. It took 15 days for two skiffs and an 18-foot supply boat to travel the 180 miles from Waco to Washington. That's 12 miles a day. You can ride a bicycle faster than that. The boats had to navigate at least 10 obstructions, including one shoal covered by only three inches of water. It took the crew four hours of backbreaking work to drag the boats over the rocks. Compared to the stretch through the Brazos Valley, the rest of the trip down to the river's mouth was a breeze. That trip threw a wet blanket on Waco's dreams of becoming a port city. Even if the project was possible, the Corps decided, it just wasn't worth the cost. But Waco's supporters wouldn't let it drop. They were convinced that their city, more than 400 river miles from the Gulf, was destined to be a major river port. So Waco's leaders decided to take matters into their own hands. Then they decide, the, the people of Waco decide that they're going to hire a Baylor professor to conduct a survey on his own. That's local professor and historian Brandon Franke. And he does a three-week journey down the Brazos, and when he comes back, he says it's perfectly navigable, except for this area where there are uh, like 16 miles where there are completely impenetrable areas. But it's perfectly navigable, except for the areas that aren't. That report was enough to energize the federal government again. They directed the Corps to do two more studies, one in 1890 and one in 1894. Both times, the Corps of Engineers recommended against the project. Then in 1899, a major flood hit the middle Brazos. For more than 500 miles, the river topped its banks up to 14 miles outside its normal channel. Floodwaters up to 15 feet deep covered more than 25 million acres. The town of Calvert got more than 34 inches of rain in a day and a half, submerging the town. In the communities of Clay and Allen Farm at the southern end of the Brazos Valley, the water got above the telegraph poles. The loss in terms of lives and property was immense. Here's what a local newspaper had to say about the flood. After this flood will come sickness undoubtedly, and what a week ago was the fairest part of Texas is now almost a godforsaken wilderness. The waters of the Brazos have for six days covered its land from six to thirty feet, where a week ago there were on every land fields of cotton and corn and thousands of acres of melons. Today there is slimy mud all over the vegetation. 
This flood convinced Congress to take another look at taming the Brazos. So the Corps finally came up with a system of eight locks and dams between Navasota and Waco that they said might make the river navigable for six months out of the year. In theory, these structures would allow water to build up in a lock until it was high enough to float a boat over the shoals. But ironically, there was nothing that these locks and dams could do about the big swings in the river's flow. And in the end, that turned out to be their undoing. From the beginning, the project was plagued by problems. Only three of the eight proposed structures were ever built. Lock and Dam 1, just outside Navasota, was nearly complete when a massive flood seriously damaged it in 1913. The repairs took a year to complete, and another flood damaged it again just three years later. By 1922, the unstable soils on the banks above and below it had begun to erode. And when the river wasn't flooding, the water in the channel was so low that the dam could only raise the water in the lock a few inches, nowhere close to the four to six feet that had been projected. Lock and Dam 8 near Waco, begun in 1911, was completely bypassed when the river changed its course, leaving the structure high and dry in a field. And Lock and Dam 3, the one just outside the town of Hearn, was started in 1916, but was never finished, partly because of the United States' entry into World War I. But the thing that finally put the nail in the coffin of this project was another transportation innovation, the truck. By the end of World War I, trucks running on a fast-improving network of roads could get crops to market much more cheaply, quickly, and reliably than the river ever could. So in 1922, Congress finally pulled the plug. The locks and dams, which had cost the U.S. government $1.4 million, were abandoned and left to deteriorate. The dream of the Brazos as a river to rival the Mississippi or the Nile was officially dead, done in by the geography of the river itself. Its fluctuating flows, its frustrating shoals, its shifting sandbars and changing channel, and its highly erodible soils all combined to defeat the best civil engineering that the early 20th century could throw at it. After that, when people talked about the Brazos, it wasn't about harnessing the river for transportation. It was mostly about controlling its floodwaters. A series of dams built on the upper stretches of the river and its tributaries in the mid-20th century helped to stem the worst of the flooding. Over time, the middle stretch of the Brazos just sort of gradually disappeared from the public view. But rivers get used for lots of things besides just commercial traffic. Irrigation, municipal water supplies, and industrial production, for example. Other Texas rivers like the Guadalupe, the Comal, and the San Marcos draw thousands of recreational users in the summer. And in cities like Austin and San Antonio, the waterfront is a major draw for businesses, tourists, and pedestrians. What makes this part of the Brazos so unloved? Well, again, a lot of it has to do with the location and physical realities of this section of the river. For one thing, there just aren't a lot of big industrial water customers in this area. The river doesn't get used much for irrigation or city water supplies because it's usually cheaper and easier to use other sources, like groundwater. And except for Waco, none of the towns on the middle Brazos are actually on the river anymore. Most of them closed up shop after the railroads came along. Even Waco turned its back on the river for a long time. It's only in the last 40 years or so, since the city built a dam and created a nice little lake in the middle of town, that Waco has started to embrace the river again. As for recreation, let's face it, the Brazos is muddy, and most people don't like muddy rivers. 
Nobody wants to swim in a hot, dirty river, especially when they can float in the cool, spring-fed waters of the San Marcos two hours away. Even fishermen, who don't even have to get in the water, stay away from the Brazos. My name is Andy, and I like Texas A&M football and fishing. That's my friend Andy. He lives in the Brazos Valley, just a few miles from the river, and he spends just about every weekend fishing. But he hardly ever fishes on the Brazos. I have been a few times. A lot of times when you fish down there, it's mostly for various species of catfish or gar. It's not exactly what you would go to target, like trophy bass or really edible fish, I guess. Um, I'm not sure how, how clean the water is, given that it looks like chocolate milk most of the time. Andy says occasionally he sees people fishing the river, usually from under a bridge. I have never actually seen anybody in a boat out there. Everybody I've seen has been uh, fishing from the bank, usually for catfish with a bucket of chicken livers or some shrimp. I was, in fact, the only one this guy had seen ever go out there and go fishing for bass, and he was kind of laughing at me because he was like, man, I told me I was wasting my time and stuff like that. Besides the fact that he's never had much luck fishing the Brazos, Andy says that access is the main problem. The river's steep, muddy banks make it really hard to get down to it. There's very little public land on this part of the river, and next to no boat ramps. Just getting a boat down to the water is a major feat. Ultimately, says Dr. Kimmel, our arm's length attitude to the middle Brazos is cultural. We still have this eastern view of rivers, or are we expect a river to look like a nice mountain stream? You know, we want it to be clear, uh, which the Brazos is not clear and is not going to be clear. And, uh, and we want it to be accessible. And so the area you're talking about from Waco on down, the, the Brazos is neither of those. It's, it's not clear and it's very inaccessible. So, so it just doesn't, doesn't lend itself well to recreation. Today, the middle Brazos has become, for many people, an invisible river. But whether they realize it or not, the river played a major role in shaping the landscape, the history, and the culture of the Brazos Valley. Its flow shaped the valley itself and deposited the rich soils that made its bottomlands famous for their cotton. Those soils drew Anglo settlers, plantation owners and slaves, and migrants from all over Europe. The river gave planters and farmers an early way to get cotton to market, before railroads and highways crisscrossed the valley, and the terrain the river carved guided the path of the railroads. Those old river towns that once sat alongside the Brazos now dot the landscape as museums and ghost towns. Even if most people don't think about it, the river is woven into the fabric of Texas culture in the form of songs, poems, novels, place names, and historical accounts. And that crumbling lock in the river outside of Hearn is a silent reminder, embedded in the landscape, that the people of the Brazos Valley once had sky-high hopes for a river that today has mostly disappeared from the public eye. For all of those reasons, Dr. Kimmel says he wishes people could learn to love the Brazos for what it is. It's a fascinating river. I wish people would recognize that and pay attention to it and uh, figure out what a fantastic thing we have right here. We need to take this invisible river, he says, and make it visible again. How do we do that? Well, for one thing, you can share this podcast with your friends. And if you haven't done it already, you can visit the podcast website at thedisappearingriver.weebly.com. You'll find pictures, maps, reading suggestions, links to web resources, and ideas for experiencing the river here in the Brazos Valley. The middle part of the Brazos doesn't get a lot of love these days. 
If we can accept it as it is, instead of wanting it to be something else, we might learn to enjoy it on its own terms. The Case of the Disappearing River was written and produced by Jason Ridgway, a student in the Department of Geography at Texas A&M University in the lovely city of College Station, Texas. The historical quotes were graciously voiced by Mr. David Lewis, a local professor and historical reenactor. Music was generously provided by Poddington Bear at soundofpicture.com, Jason Shaw at audionautics.com, Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, and Raul Cabezali at Gemendo Licensing. Visit the podcast website for links to the tracks.